Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings and welcome to the New Books in Media and Communication podcast. I'm your host, John Sullivan, from Muhlenberg College here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Media and Communication podcast channel, along with my colleague, Dr. Jeff Pooley. Today's podcast is all about social media networks, from Facebook and Twitter to Instagram, Flickr, and Tumblr. Online social media seem to be ubiquitous in our society today. We treat we don't treat, we tweet, we register our likes, we comment, we update our status, we share photos of our most personal experiences, and we regularly engage with others from around the globe in what seems like a daily deluge of information exchange. But what does this all mean for us? What's going on behind the scenes? Are we actively shaping the social media environment, or is it actively programming us in subtle ways? My guest today has a lot of fascinating things to say about that. His name is Robert Gale. Rob is Assistant Professor of New Media in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah, and he earned his PhD in Cultural Studies from George Mason University. His research draws on science and technology studies, software studies, political economy, and critical and cultural studies. His research also focuses on the intersections between technologies, practices, and subjectivities. He's the author of a brand new book that we're talking about today called Reverse Engineering Social Media, Software, Culture, and Political Economy in New Media Capitalism, which was just recently published by Temple University Press. Uh, At Utah, Rob teaches a number of courses in communication technology, composition in new media, and political economy of communication. He's on the line with me now, all the way from Salt Lake City. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, I'm so fascinated by this book, and it's a very complicated book in a way with a lot of moving parts, but I just want to start out maybe by asking you to explain the title. So we all know something about social media, but reverse engineering social media. Uh, what do you mean by reverse engineering? Um, what I mean by that is uh, trying to pick up some concepts and ideas from the reverse engineering literature as it appears in engineering and also uh, to a lesser extent in law uh, as a means to kind of dissect or take apart or decompose um, the assemblages that we face, uh, namely Facebook, Twitter, Google, and so on, which are very complicated socio-technical systems. And so the approach is basically how do we take these things apart and see how all the parts come together, um, which is one half of the reverse engineering approach. The second half of the approach is once you've done that work and you've learned something about the object that you're decomposing, disassembling, what do you do? There's a normative move. And so in in reverse engineering, the normative move might be, well, I want to make a new product to compete with, uh, you know, whatever I'm looking at. I want to make another Google or another Twitter. Um, But I take that up in kind of a critical sense and say, okay, um, if we are so concerned about social media for a variety of reasons that I talk about in the book, this surveillance uh, um, kind of 
inserting itself into our social interactions. What do we do? And so the conclusion of the book, I look at alternatives to uh, the mainstream social media. And that's largely the research project that I'm on uh, now, is looking into alternative social media. That's great. That's great. Thanks for that. I mean, I think one of the uh, really important insights of the book is kind of built upon what I gather is really kind of astute awareness that you have about computer systems, as well as the kind of logics and architecture for how those systems work. Uh, I'm just curious if you have any kind of specialized training in computers that kind of brought you to that in a way. I would say that um, formally, no, not at all. Um, other than just growing up with computers, being surrounded by them. I was very lucky. Uh, my family had uh, IBM PCs and uh, Tandys, and uh, I dabbled with programming as a kid and basic, and it made terrible video games and that sort of thing. Uh, but I went away from that. Um, as I got older, my background is in literature and cultural studies. Um, but the training I got at George Mason in cultural studies um, basically it's a particular orientation to the object. So in this case, um, when we're confronted with an object like social media, it demands certain sorts of analysis. And one of those avenues being uh, the technical side of things. So I spent a lot of time looking at the history of computer science and the um, history of software engineering, which I find very fascinating and I've written about in other places. And I've tried to pick up concepts and ideas from those to uh, do that reverse engineering process with um, uh, social media. So, all that said, my training is also in terms of paying attention to the social side of these. So what I was trying to do is mix the social and the technical because that's kind of the science and technology studies approach. Um, so, yeah, no formal training, autodidact, I guess you'd say. Um, and I continually struggle with that. And I'm constantly talking to people who know a lot more about computer science and software engineering to kind of test out ideas. Um, and so far, I haven't been uh, repudiated too much by any uh, software engineers, but I fully expect that at some point. Okay, that's great. Um, can you say a little bit about how you're situating your work? So you're looking at social uh, media. Uh, you come from a cultural studies background, but what kind of scholarly orientations are you bringing to, the, to your study of social media, particularly in this book? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much informed by uh, science and technology studies, particularly um, kind of actor network theory school. I'm particularly drawn John Law quite a bit in my work. Um, the idea of the assemblage, the idea of the, uh, the um, socio-technical system. So that's one um, main branch. Another is uh, reading a lot of Marx and my cultural studies program and thinking about uh, political economy in a serious way. And actually, if you look at Stuart Hall's discussion of Marx's method, it aligns in interesting ways with the sort of um, move in science and technology studies to decompose socio-technical systems. Um, so those are two kind of main strains that I pick up in the book. Lately, I've been trying to do those two things and mix in Foucaultian genealogy. Um, and then all of this is kind of in conversation with the, the, the growing literature about social media that exists. Uh, there's some fine work by uh, Ganelling Law, for example. Um, of course, Dana Boyd's work, uh, Alice Marwood's work, um, Mark Andreevich's work. Um, I consider myself in kind of conversation with folks like that. That's great. That's great. 
I mean, for me, your book kind of spans a number of kind of fascinating historical moments and kind of philosophical traditional uh, traditions in kind of interesting and new ways, um, in really kind of novel ways. Uh, so I want to kind of bring out an example that you uh, talk about in your first chapter about the kind of the rise of social bots online and how they might be linked back to um, you link it back to Alan Turing's famous test of computer intelligence from the mid 20th century, right? Um, so when I think of social bots, uh, I don't know too much about social bots. I kind of think of like the Stephen Colbert, real human praise social bots where he created an auto, uh, auto algorithmic social bots. But I remember, I recall listening, uh, on a particular episode of NPR's on the media when they outlined a chat bot that's used by the U.S. Army called Sergeant Star that they created within a series of questions that you would, could recruits could ask to figure out what life was like in the military, and it would give them a series of pat responses. Uh, but what's your interest in social bots, and how do you connect that back then to something like Turing's test from the 20th century? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm less interested in um, whether there could be something like artificial intelligence when I talk about social bots. Social bots are pretty fascinating to me um, as kind of a bleeding-edge technology that's emerging in social media um, because they're built to appear to be human. So unlike Sergeant Star, for example, or going back to classic bots like Eliza, for example, um, they're not meant to appear to be bots. Uh, they're meant to appear to be human profiles. And so my point with that chapter is I'm basically asking what makes it possible for these bots to appear to be human within, say, Facebook and Twitter. One answer could be, well, the people who program them are remarkably good at computer programming and artificial intelligence. They're passing the Turing test in kind of this social media sense. But another answer is it draws their attention to the highly mediated structure of social media, how it um, kind of forces uh, social interaction into particular kind of constrained forms. So the most famous example of that would be, of course, you know, 140 characters in Twitter, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, there's certain practices that are uh, made possible by the software of Facebook and Twitter. There's certain practices that are not allowed. And in that kind of um, structure, uh, these social bots can kind of emerge and act human in certain ways. And so I think social bots as they are right now are kind of crude. Um, I'm actually working on an edited collection with uh, Maria Bacargieva at University of Calgary on social bots. Um, I think they're, they're kind of crude, but I think they're going to get more sophisticated. And I say that they're crude because they do things like um, a basic tactic is to use a picture of a hot person as a profile picture, right? So that's a basic social engineering aspect of it. So this, Practices and the technologies of social media can lead to um, bots living in there as if they're human. And I think that's very interesting. And I use that to kind of pick up and say, okay, that's why the architecture matters. If this is possible, then we really have to pay attention to the overall structure of these sites. So that's why I'm doing with it there as opposed to judging the ability of these bots to pass, say, a Turing test. I'm using Turing's test as a, a means to kind of comprehend them, but I'm not really interested in the the AI side of things, so to speak. Right. But for me, I think what's interesting about that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the points that you're making in that chapter also is that you're talking about that the fuel, if you will, to create the illusion of reality 
comes from the aggregated social media posts that all of us collectively are making, and that that's something that's kind of fascinating about that process. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah, uh, very accurate. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, the patterns of interaction that emerge, you know, people being more interested in a hot profile, so to speak. Um, the the uh, what in social network analysis is called the triadic closure principle, where if you and I are friends, and then I'm a friends with a friend with a third person, you're likely to become friends with that person. These sort of patterns of interaction, patterns. Um, of conversation that occur allow social bots to exist. And yeah, as you say, fuel the rise of social bots. You analyze these massive digital uh, aggregates of patterns of conversation and interaction, and then you can make agents that appear to fit right in with that structure. Right. And the more social media uh, kind of uh, messages that are out there, maybe the easier that is to make a realistic social bot so to speak. Yeah, the larger these archives grow, uh, the easier it is to do something like create social bots. Um, you know, that this is an, a, another take on the, the question of studying patterns and uh, kind of directing or subtly shaping social interaction. I think a better example these days would probably be the Facebook emotional contagion study that came out this summer and was so controversial. That sort of thing is similar to social bots in that um, these patterns of interaction allow for the manipulation of, say, uh, keywords and uh, emotional cues that can shape how we feel after we interact with our social streams of Facebook. Yeah, you you also kind of talk in there uh, in the book, kind of in the middle of the book, about this central tension or contradiction in the architecture of computer hardware between the processor that runs operations and applications and the archive, right? The hard drive that stores the data, even servers that can store data for you know, weeks, months, years, decades, perhaps, of our social media utterances. Uh, you write that this is kind of this contradiction is the motor that drives social media, right? What, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that um, a lot of the cues and a lot of the interfaces that we're presented with social media, mainstream social media, Facebook and Twitter in particular, are very oriented to the now and the new, the immediate and the trend. So, I mean, a basic thing you see is um, the classic question that you, you would confront in Facebook, and I, don't, I can't remember if this is the prompt anymore, but what's on your mind? What's happening right now? You see this kind of now phrase repeated in various forms across social media. And to my mind, that links up with the distinction between the, the processor and the archive. And so if we want to talk about the power of the user within social media, and a lot of people do, one area that um, the user uh, has a lot of power uh, would be in, the, in terms of the immediate and the now and setting trends, um, you know, setting aside people intervening in terms of like viral marketing and so on. Um, the immediacy of social media is so very important. But at the same time, we have to talk about the kind of flip side of that, and this is the long-term storage. And this is an area that we have far less power in terms of Facebook. We have far less access to our own archives that we've produced through our kind of immediate reaction, status updates, and so on. Um, and this is, this is the money, right? For This is the money for Facebook, Twitter, Google, and so on. 
uh, these large databases of interaction that can be, you know, access to which can be sold to marketers or um, all of these companies are getting very involved in their own advertising games. Uh, Facebook is increasingly uh, paying attention to how advertising works within its uh, borders, so to speak. Google, of course, has ad networks. It bought uh, multiple ad networks and has a vested interest in advertising. And that long-term storage is what fuels that, uh, the ability to produce, produce advertisements that meet up with um, very, very complicated profiles built not of us per se, and this goes back to the social bot thing, but of patterns of us. Um, it, it's less about you know your profile and my profile, in my view, and more about um, us as kind of representatives of particular, I don't want to use the word demographics because I don't think that's really the right word, but particular patterns of interaction, particular emotional um, cues and emotional um, triggers. Um, so that, that distinction is between, you know, we have power over the now as social media users, the social media site owners, you know, lay claim and control the archive. And that that's the huge contradiction in social media that I see. Right. It's almost like we value each other for our individuality, but the system values us for our data points as aggregates, right? That we, we matter to the system in the sense that we are a part of an aggregate and we can be connected with other data points. Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. Great. Uh, I noticed that throughout the book, you know, you really call on uh, Marxist theory to help understand a lot of the trends in social media. So in something like kind of contrasting what you document as kind of the failure, in a way, of MySpace to really become a kind of very popular social media network and contrast that with the success of a service like Facebook. Success really defined in terms of the number of users, not necessarily in any kind of value-added term. Uh, How can Marx kind of help us understand, let's say, the MySpace versus Facebook dynamic? Well, I was I was picking up there uh, in the chapter you're referring to uh, real software abstractions on um, Marxian scholars who study abstraction and think about abstract categories kind of coming alive. And so you can point to a lot of different things and a lot. Of Alfred Sonnenfall being the central one in this tradition, um, he's pointing to money as the abstraction that kind of dominates day to day life. So we have this. Um, thing that arises in real social relations and then it becomes this abstract entity that um, what mean to the point these days where uh, we stare at uh, stock tickers and, and try to see how that's going to affect our lives um, and I pick up on that idea and I try to play with it in terms of the software engineering idea of abstraction and that is um, hiding layers of in the, um, code and technical structure behind interfaces or other abstractions um, so to my mind, those two sync up in interesting ways. And what I try to do in that chapter is think about MySpace versus Facebook and their kind of famous um, duel, so to speak, in the 2000s. Uh, in terms of MySpace, I argue that it was a little bit too messy, a little bit too concrete. Um, and this is a, uh, a result of the fact, the kind of accidental fact that people could uh, do pimping of their pages, alter their pages in many ways. And some of that would be changing the backgrounds, changing how the top friends appeared, um, but also uh, changing even if advertisements appeared in the navigational system, which, um, you know, if, if you 
were to build a software system, you would not allow that to happen uh, if you're doing kind of commercial mainstream social media. And the the community I talk about is kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, is Satanists. I look at Satanists in MySpace, and they've got all these, I mean, everything you can imagine, just these awful, garish pages um, where they've pimped their pages to reflect their uh, fealty to Satan. And then I compare that to Satanism in Facebook, and it's a remarkably different uh, phenomenon. It's clean and sanitized, and um, even the description of Satanism in the Facebook page is pulled from Wikipedia, so it's very um, clinical. Um, if you read it, it's kind of funny. Um, and so that environment, to my mind, seems more amenable to the main constituency of any social media, and that is uh, the markers. They want to insert advertising messages. It's very difficult for them to insert messages into a pimped, uh, cacophonous MySpace page in the 2000s. It's easier to insert those marketing messages into Facebook. So the overall point about Marxian abstraction and also software abstraction is that the interface kind of provides an abstract system that we are allowed to implement. It has a lot of rules built into it. Um, it becomes kind of an entity that shapes how we use it. And by looking at that, we see you know, the different constituencies of both MySpace and Facebook and why Facebook, a part of the reason why Facebook took off, it got money because advertisers liked it far better. And just as a user navigating the sites, I mean, one of the problems I had with even navigating MySpace is even just figuring out where information was on different MySpace pages. Uh, you know, they, some of them, it, and every page could be different from another page. They were to, there was no central organizing logic to MySpace, which made it kind of exciting in a way. But you can understand why advertisers would look at that and run the other way, screaming, uh, simply because it just didn't share a kind of aesthetic that would lend itself to uh, advertising in a way. Yeah, and it denied a lot of the work that advertisers have done to standardize um, advertisement placement and metrics that I talk about in the chapter immediately following that. Um, advertisers have worked very hard to standardize um, online advertising, which was very chaotic in the 90s and then became very standardized in the 2000s. And Facebook taps into the standardization, whereas MySpace doesn't. You're right. You know, as a user, it's just confusing. But then again, look at the web in the 90s or uh, the dark web now. Uh, it's kind of a confusing, uh, very um, customized kind of, uh, you know, the metaphor of the wild, wild west comes to mind. Um, but it's also very exciting for those reasons. You know, people are expressing themselves in different ways. And so, you know, there were people mourning the death of MySpace. I don't know if we can go that far, but the reasons they mourned it was, you know, people could do what they want with their pages. They could modify them and edit them. That you, you just can't do that with Facebook. Right, and even services like Tumblr are still very much more homogenized than MySpace ever was in terms of their outlay and what they allow you to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that gets picked up in all sorts of social media systems now. Um, Hello, for example, uh, has a pretty standardized layout. It doesn't seem like it can be altered very much. Uh, Tumblr, um, it, even the alternatives that I talk about in the conclusion of the book, there's kind of a genre of interaction that we understand, and that is social media, and you expect certain things. It's standardized, and I think that has particular effects in terms of how we socialize online. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
since you mentioned that chapter about advertising, uh, I want to follow up on that because that's probably my favorite chapter on in the book. Maybe potentially the one that's the most wonky, so to speak. But it's also one of my favorite chapters in the book just because it deals with the history and importance of standards in computing and in social media, which is something I find fascinating. But rather than kind of argue that technical standards are, I mean, you do argue that technical standards are connected in a way to technological politics. That's something that, you know, has been argued a lot. You can even go back famously to Lessig's code book to sort of see that argument. And lots of others have made a similar argument. But what I think is fascinating about that chapter is that you look at how at online advertising standards developed, in particular the size and placement, as you just mentioned, um, that this emerged as kind of a critical problem that advertisers had to address in the late 90s, early 2000s. Can you briefly kind of just give an overview of your argument there? Yeah, so... um... I think one of the first lines in the chapters is standards are somehow sexy, and they are. Um, people point to TCP/IP uh, as this kind of fundamental reason why the internet is democratic. Right? It's a distributed networking protocol, um, and that just orients us to the politics of these standards. And I think that um, if we're going to talk about social media, we have to talk about advertising standards which include not only how advertisements appear on web pages um, within social media and so on, uh, it also includes standardizations of metrics, which I think drives a lot of what we see in social media. So basically in the 1990s, um, advertisers confronted a pretty uh, wild internet. Um, If I remember rightly, the number of web banners that existed at the time was about 250. So if you, in, uh, in addition, if, if you're a major advertiser and you want to reach a lot of people, um, you might go to Yahoo at that time. You might go to the New York Times and so on. But if you want to reach a lot of people and you're interested in, say, niche markets, how do you do that? You would you go to individual sites and say, I'd like to advertise. Okay, you, know, you can have X, Y, and Z pixels or X and Y pixels on the page, and that's different for every page. That's very cacophonous very difficult for advertisers to negotiate. In addition, there was a lot of suspicion about metrics uh, in the 1990s. So if I'm the New York Times, I'm not sure if I want to share my metrics with uh, marketers or which metrics to share. And so what I look at is, is one standardist organization in terms of online marketing. It's not the only one, but it's, it's I think, a very important one. And that's the um, Interactive Advertising Bureau um, which at that time in the 90s was the Internet Active Advertising Bureau. And the work that they did to standardize both the shapes of uh, ads, how they appear, their behavior, but also the metrics. And I don't think it's accidental, although I, 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 you know, I'm not a fan of like a linear causality here. Um, but right after all these standards emerge, right after advertisers figure out how to reach niche audiences and blog audiences and so on, we see the rise of these profiling machines, uh, as Greg Elmer might call them, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google and so on, that very much are in line with a lot of the metrics that the advertising industry is after. However, I shouldn't overstate the the uh, relationship between, say, the IIB and Facebook, um, because Facebook has given marketers some fits in terms of not hewing to some of the standards uh, in terms of shapes and uh, placement. 
Uh, but overall, if we're going to talk about the political economy of social media, we have to talk about the role of marketing standards, the role of advertising standards and metrics, and how those reflect technological choices that we see in something like Google, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. Right, and it seems like also there's, at least today, there's a dialogic process happening whereby early on advertisers wanted to set a certain set of standards and that now that those have been taken up to some extent by major search engines like Google and Yahoo and also social media like Facebook and others and Twitter and so on so forth. But do you think now that there's that that's turning back on the system and now that Facebook and Twitter are basically inventing new standards to which the advertising industry has had to adapt? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think if you if you talk to some marketers and advertisers as I have, you would see, the answer would be yes. Um, concerns about, um, I, I guess basically the best way to think it through would be to look at the position of Facebook and Twitter um, they're caught up in this kind of ethos of allowing people to be the media, allowing people to express themselves. But at the same time, at the end of the day, they have shareholders and they have to uh, you know, produce value for those shareholders or returns on their investment. And so in order to do that, the predominant political economy that we live in would be you sell advertising space. And then the tension becomes, well, what do those ads look like? Are they you know, sponsored posts? Are they subtle things? Are they... Um, if you like something in Facebook, it becomes kind of an implicit endorsement that was picked up by Facebook that was used by Google and Google+. And so, um, yeah, I think that one could argue that these folks are developing new standards that marketers have to adhere to. Um, it's especially an issue with uh, something like Facebook Connect becoming kind of a de facto login, although Twitter's um, authentication system is important here, uh, for a site like the New York Times. Um, So I think that's a very astute observation. You cannot really overstate the case, or um, you can't really simply argue that the advertisers produce social media. It is kind of this uh, tension and negotiation. And so you see that when Facebook sets up an ad um, kind of consulting firm and they get together with marketers and there's all these debates about what the best approach is to use Facebook and so on. Right. And then with Twitter, you know, some of the most powerful uh, firms that are providing advertisers with metrics for Twitter then suddenly get bought out by Twitter and become part of Twitter. And then Twitter becomes the very, you know, controls the very metric by which they are measured in a way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the question of big data in Twitter um, Twitter was a big data darling for, for a while. People thought, okay, we can just tap into the sentiments of, of you know, millions if not billions of people. And now it's become kind of this uh, place where if you got enough money, you get access to that. But it's, it's certainly not. Um, I mean, that's part of their business model. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, let's fast forward maybe then to going towards the, the end of the book where uh, after sort of really taking the curtain off of some of these systems behind social media that construct our activities and our abilities to engage in that space in various kinds of ways. Uh, you talk about, well, what, what can we do about social media? How can we make it more democratic? How can we make it more responsive? Right? And you even go so far as to call this a kind of manifesto for social media. Right? What do we need to do in order to make social media 
uh, operate more like an open democratic system and less like the kind of system that we have today. Yeah, uh, that's was a very difficult chapter to think through. I, I kind of adhering to the reverse engineering methodology that I talked about earlier. It's not enough to critique these systems. It's it's necessary to try and come up with, use that knowledge to build something better. Um, going back to your question about my training, uh, I'm certainly not qualified to build a better social media system. So what I try to do in that chapter, of the Manifesto for Socialized Media, is simply pick up on all the critical um, concepts, the critiques of social media, the kind of deconstruction of social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter and so on, and lay out what socialized media might look like. And so I pick up on media theorists and um, critics of media to talk about things like true two-way communication, um, the need for encryption, um, but also kind of anti-archival things like more fluid identities, um, maybe data with a time to live uh, to kind of combat the impulse to collect everything. Um, uh, decentralization, which is one of the most fraught terms in terms of, uh, I think, critical media theory and alternative media. Uh, everyone says it. Nobody can really define what it is. And basically what I try to do in that chapter is offer um, a design speculation, so to speak, a, a an overarching architecture of what a more democratic social media system would look like. But I think the more interesting part of that chapter is less my, you know, uh, speculation and more the actual projects that people are engaged in to do exactly that. So you look at something like Diaspora, of course, as a challenge to Facebook. And, and what Diaspora does is uh, attempts to decentralize social media by allowing people to install it on their own servers pods in the parlance of diaspora and yet allow people to connect across pods and, and do the kind of um, canonical or generic social uh, networking that we're used to. Uh, you can look at projects to build mesh nets, um, so to challenge the centrality of internet service providers as the gatekeepers to get us onto the internet. Um, you can look at projects like uh, Loria uh, as another kind of federated social media system and then you can look at projects that are more centralized um, but offering an alternative. And maybe their alternative is simply we don't sell your data to marketers. We don't do advertising. Um, and so one example that I've written about recently is a social network that exists on the dark web, um, which is virulently anti-commercial. Um, but it is centralized, and it's basically controlled by only a handful of administrators. Um, so... None of these systems live up to that idealized speculation that I offer, but I wouldn't expect them to because it seems like it's an impossible goal. So I'm left with kind of a quandary. I do all this critical work and I say, let's do something better than I can't really specify what that is because we live in very difficult kind of technical environments, socio-technical environments that constrain us no matter our best intentions. Um, so it's a, that chapter set up as a tension between my idealization and what can actually happen, what is actually happening. But the, my hope is that you know, people look at all these alternatives and take them seriously and, tr and keep building better systems that challenge the status quo. It seems to me that your, that chapter is a nice, in really nice dialogue with, let's say, a scholar like Vincent Mosco, who's critiquing cloud computing 
in the same kind of way, arguing that what we need is less consolidation of data on servers that are controlled by entities over which we have very little uh, legal uh, power, and instead to decentralize the storage of data uh, to open that up in a way. It seems to me that you're that you're kind of agreeing with that in, in a way. I'm agreeing with it, but I'm also uh, saying that this is that's a really, really, really hard problem. Going back to uh, Langdon Winter, and, uh, the Whale and the Reactor has a chapter on decentralization where he basically outlines, and at, at the time he was writing, I think he was thinking about decentralization of power. So why are we getting our power from central um, you know, power generators? Why don't we have each of us have our own generator? And that's been kind of a, subtle thread in American thought, you know, you think about the off the grid movement and so on. Um, but decentralization is really hard and centralization gives you certain kind of economic, uh, efficiencies as it were. Um, so what do you do with decentralized data? How do you link people up? So let's say we decentralize our social media data and then I try to connect with people. What's the mechanism by which that works? Um, it's not necessarily impossible. One project that's pretty fascinating from this perspective is called Twister. It's made by a Brazilian uh, software developer, um, which does social media, specifically kind of a Twitter alternative, on top of Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin protocol. So it's very uh, distributed, but there's always this kind of centralization at the core in, in terms of uh, uh, the public ledger of exchanges. So it's a fascinating problem. It's not, there's no real simple solution um, but it, it certainly is a conversation with, you know, a, a, a desire for decentralization um, that we also can see in political theory in terms of you know, federalized uh, political uh, systems and so on. It's really hard. It's, 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 it's really hard. <laughs> uh, well, with that, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, now that we've had a chance to sort of, talk about the book a little bit. Can you tell me something about what you're working on next? Where, where do you go from here? Yeah, well, like I said, I'm basically picking up on that final chapter and taking seriously the idea of social media alternatives as kind of a new form of alternative media. Uh, so uh, in that sense, I'm digging into the alternative media literature um, and thinking about theorizing what, you know, if I said this is alternative social media, what am I saying by that? How am I conceptualizing? How do you recognize it if you see it in the wild? And so one thing I've done is talk to a lot of developers of alternative sites uh, like Twister, uh, RStatus, which is another Twitter alternative, New Social, um, this really fascinating one called Quitter, Quitter.se. I recommend it highly. It's fascinating. Um, the dark web social network that I talked about. I'm trying to see what sort of threads connect them all. Um, if I were to talk about alternative social media in a more abstract sense, what would that mean? And I think, I don't have answers just yet, but I think a lot of it centers on the organization of how the sites are, are produced, both in terms of like the users producing the content, but also behind the scenes, um, the engineers and the coders and all those folks. Uh, is that centralized or is that decentralized? Is that democratic or is that hierarchical? Um, and also the political economy of these sites, how are they paid for? How do you address that issue? Is it donation-based? Like Wikipedia gives us some indication of what that would look like. Um, so that's what I'm looking at. And kind of as uh, 
a fellow traveler project, I'm also looking at the history of software engineering, kind of a genealogy of software engineering, and thinking seriously about the word engineering, which is a pretty fascinating term because it contains within it ingenuity and um, kind of realizing ideas in a built environment. But it also has this history of seduction and trap and um, persuasion and, and almost rhetoric tied to it, um, and morality as well. So I want to take that up and think about software engineering as kind of the contemporary site at which a lot of our lives, um, a, lot, a lot of aspects of our lives are structured. So it's kind of a software studies perspective. And I think the two talk to each other. One's more specific than the other. One's more kind of abstract and theoretical than the other. Terrific. Well, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about your new book. I really appreciate it. I recommend it to to all the listeners of the podcast. It's really, really a fascinating look at social media. And I have to say, different, much different than the other literature that's out there about social media currently. It does take a different um, orientation to it that I think is, is really, really valuable and worthwhile. So, Rob, thanks so much for for joining me. Oh, thank you, John. This, this is great. Um, this has been the New Books in Media and Communication. Again, my guest has been uh, Robert Gale from the University of Utah. His new book, just out from Temple University Press, is called Reverse Engineering, Social Media, Software, Culture, and Political Economy in New Media Capitalism. My name is John Sullivan. I've been your host here from Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And on behalf of my co-host, Jeff Pooley, let me say thanks for listening. Please keep tuned in to the new books in media and communication for brand new books coming your way soon. So thanks and so long.